0: I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas About the Myth of the
1: Secular. The nation-state becomes the site of a kind of sacred experience that absorbs the need for and place of a transcendent experience. Uh, So it, in some ways, becomes a competitor with and displaces the church. Uh, So the state becomes the point at which one can be asked to sacrifice, and one can be asked to sacrifice because there is a revelatory meaning there. It is an imaginable possibility that we will give up everything for the sake of the state.
0: When the president of the United States is away from the White House, he's accompanied by a military aide carrying a black briefcase, nicknamed the football. It contains codes that enable the launch of nuclear weapons. Should the president consider that the national interest of the United States required it, he could, on the spot, give orders that would destroy or poison much of the world. At that moment, no assembly would vote, no court would review the case, no precedent would apply. The fate of the world would hang on his or her sovereign decision. In a recent book called Political Theology, American writer Paul Kahn cites this example to show how much politics in his native United States rests on theological bedrock, on faith, not reason. What else but a religious commitment, he asks, could make the destruction of the world even thinkable? What else could justify the sacrifice of soldiers in war? Paul Kahn is a professor of law at Yale University and the author of a series of books that reflect on the ways in which a sense of the sacred structures American political life. Today on Ideas, he talks with David Cayley as we continue with our series, The Myth of the Secular. In
2: 1922, a little book called Political Theology, four chapters on the concept of sovereignty was published in Germany. Its author was a young law professor called Carl Schmidt. Schmidt went on to become an apologist for Hitler's Third Reich, a stand for which he never repented. But despite his odious political conduct, his book has lasted and continues to attract commentary from a who's who of philosophers and theorists of all political stripes. One of the latest is Paul Kahn. In 2011, he published Political Theology, four new chapters on the concept of sovereignty. Kahn has no sympathy for Schmitt's politics, but he thinks Schmitt's ideas shed considerable light on the political constitution of the United States, which has been the subject of many of Kahn's writings. Schmitt wrote in his Political Theology that All significant concepts of the modern theory of the state are secularized theological concepts. Our idea of sovereignty, for example, is formed, according to Schmidt, on our idea of God, and makes no sense without it. Kahn agrees. He believes that it is only possible to understand American political life if one recognizes that the state is sacred. I spoke with Paul Kahn recently, and I asked him how he got started on the road to political theology. He began by saying that he belonged to the American generation that came of age during the Vietnam War, a time when the question of what the citizen owes the state could be a question of life or death. And this led him to doubt, he said, the liberal theory which sees the state as founded on a contract between citizens that we enter for our mutual benefit. Could this really account, he wondered, for the hold the state exercises on
1: its citizens? I was having serious issues with the way in which liberal political theory conceptualized the state and looking for alternative ways to think about it, and some of those ways of thinking about it have to do with displacing what I think is at the center of liberal political theory, which is an idea of reason, of man as a reasonable subject, and trying to model politics on a form of reasonable discourse, most commonly the social contract. How would we write a social contract if we were to come together as individual entities and think about overcoming our collective action problems? And this always seemed to me an element of the state, but not enough to understand our particular commitments to particular states and the the forms of political action that have always uh, interested me, which are not elements of the state that contribute to our our well-being, but elements of the state that tell us who we are and elements of the state that demand from us actions that can't be uh, justified in terms of our individual well-being, that is, defend the state, sacrifice. So I was thinking about these issues. In fact, I wrote a book called Putting Liberalism in Its Place, which I always have to say is not putting liberalism down, but rather putting it in its place. and, And its place is to understand it as an aspect of political life, an aspect of what we expect of our politics, but not a complete account. And that which is left over, the supplement, so to speak, or that which requires a supplement, is the way in which the imagination configures a space of meaning in politics. And for me, that becomes the subject of political theology. Political theology, as opposed to political theory, is about the nature of the commitments that we make to the state that are matters of faith, matters of practice matters of the narrative we tell ourselves, matters of our understanding, but not the consequences of a, of a deductive argument, as if we can start from scratch and, and rewrite the social contract and explain what it is a, a just state should or should not do. Not, it's not that I'm against justice. Uh, it's, in fact, I'm for justice. It's that I think justice is only one of the elements of our political life.
2: Paul Kahn was pushed towards political theology because he felt that liberal political thought was too dry and rational that it left out the imagination, not in the sense of fantasy, but in the larger sense which Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor has tried to capture with the term social imaginary, the imagined framework in which things hang together and make sense to us. Carl Schmitt's notion that our key political concepts have grown from theological roots helped Kahn to understand the American social and political imaginary. Schmitt begins his book with the famous sentence, Sovereign is he who decides on the exception. The sovereign, in other words, is above the law because the sovereign is able to abridge or set aside the law at will to act when law fails or does not yet exist. Sovereignty makes exceptions. And this exactly fit the American case, Kahn thought, because the United States is a society of laws whose sovereignty ultimately rests on a violent exception to law,
1: the revolution. In American life, the great exception is the revolution. This is the great moment of freedom. It is an action that is no longer, well, first of all, we should say, it's not causally determined. Revolutions are completely unpredictable. Disturbance is not, violence is not always unpredictable. But that there will be a revolution, I mean, just look at the Arab Spring, completely unpredictable. These things emerge as if from nowhere. The collapse of the Soviet Union in 1989. No, none of the Russian experts predicted this. So politics is free in this deep sense. So, So now we have a revolution which is creates an extraordinary political space. But it's wrong to think of it as simply an arbitrary political space. It's not caused. Doesn't mean it's arbitrary. When it is a successful revolution, it will be seen as an exception that acts with reference to a law, but not determined by the law, or norm, but not determined by norm. What is that norm? Well, here is the really interesting thing. The norm to which revolution refers is the Constitution. Interestingly, here's what's really interesting. The Constitution doesn't yet exist. But the relationship between revolution and Constitution, in, in the American mind, I would say, is exactly this relationship that the revolution is the exceptional act that brings forth the Constitution. It does it as a free act. So a good deal of the book is about this fundamental imaginative structure of the way in which we understand law in the United States. And I think of several things. First, we understand the Constitution as the product of the popular sovereign, and because it is the product of the popular sovereign, it's our law, since we are all members of the popular sovereign. So we participate in the construction and creation of this law. We choose it. We will it. Now, that means that there is a kind of reciprocal relationship between constitution and revolution. The truth of the revolution is the constitution. If the revolution failed to produce a constitution, it would be simply a a moment of political disturbance in British history. It might have been a moment of treasonous action. It might have been a moment of criminal violence. But it becomes a revolution because it successfully leads to the Constitution. And why is the Constitution the Constitution? Not because it's law at an appropriate level of generality, but because in and through the Constitution, we see the revolution. That is, we read through the Constitution to see it as the product of the popular sovereign. Now, this is a deeply theological conception. So you can think about revolution as the appearance of the popular sovereign, the appearance of kind of the sacred center, the appearance of, of the divine, and you can think about constitution as the trace or remainder that that sovereign sacred center leaves behind once it withdraws. So we see through the constitution, we see through it always to a revolutionary presence of the popular sovereign. That's what gives it its claim upon us. It's not just law that happens to have been there for 200 years. It's not just, you know, something we happen to find. It's something that makes a compelling claim upon us because we see through constitution to revolution, and we see revolution as the presence of the popular sovereign, and we see in that uh, our political identity. That's who we are.
2: The revolution reveals what Paul Kahn calls the popular sovereign, the sovereign power of we the people the words with which the American Constitution begins, and reveals, for Kahn, is the right word, because he thinks the coming into being of the popular sovereign during the Revolution precisely mirrors the mechanics of religious revelation. In the Bible, God makes his will known through various intermediaries, then withdraws. Even Moses, to whom he speaks directly, cannot see his face, but only as the King James Bible says, his back parts. What is left as a trace of the withdrawing God is a text. The revolution, likewise, leaves its trace in the constitutional text. Something new has been revealed. The American people as a single body, incarnate in every American, but also possessing a mystical unity, a single will, which succeeding generations will endlessly try to discern and invoke. The analogy with the church is clear. And further evidence that this is a religious or theological conception, Kahn says, is the belief of the
1: revolutionaries that history has started over. This is a beginning of history anew. From this point forward, the state means something else what happened before this will be reinterpreted in light of this. It will become steps on the path to revolution. <laughs> Nobody thinks about you know, American history before 1776, for example, as, well, that's just the British colonial empire. We think about it as preparation for revolution. And think about the French. The French literally do this. They start the calendar over. Revolution, year one. And this has to do with the relationship between the the revolutionary presence, which is a revelatory presence of the popular sovereign. And that's the transcendent moment of founding a state that can make a claim, an infinite ultimate claim upon not only all the lives of the state, but all the material resources of the state. And as an American, one of the things I objected to most about contemporary political theory It's not just that it has no way of understanding the role of political violence in the construction of identity, but it acts as if the commitments to violence are an accident or unimportant or something that we're going to get over. But you see this most importantly. So you know, I I assume you grew up during the Cold War. So I lived my entire life under the threat of mutual assured destruction. So a political theorist has to ask the question, how can the state, the political entity, be of more value than the, continue, the very continuation of history itself. What are we imagining? How do we imagine a state that can sustain a value under which we can threaten the existence of the entire world? Either you say, well, it's just a mistake, but that's not any kind of theory or it's just a problem we have to work through. That's not any kind of theory. You need to take seriously the imaginative construction of politics that makes this possible. Because for someone, it was possible. There are lots of things we could do that we don't do because we can't imagine them. But we did do this, (laughs) and we're still doing this. So we will know, I say, when a political theology is no longer appropriate because it no longer tracks our political beliefs when the last nuclear weapon is decommissioned then we will know that politics no longer exists in the domain of the extraordinary and the revelatory, but simply in the domain of justice, of creating adequate institutions in which individuals can realize their own vision of, the well, of their own well-being, a definition of liberalism.
2: In describing the founding of the United States as an imaginative act, Paul Kahn knows that he is not offering an historical account the soldiers of the revolution were not necessarily communing with the popular sovereign in dreams and visions. It took the Christian church several centuries to thrash out the meaning of its revelation, and it was only over time that the meaning of the American Revolution was established. When it was occurring, Kant says, the revolution was as messy and unclear as any historical event.
1: People only have a vague sense of what they're doing when they do it. They do things for lots of different reasons, from, you know, my neighbor told me to do it, to this is the meaning of my life. And, of course, the Constitution isn't really directly the historical product of the Revolution in the sense that uh, the revolutionaries didn't sit down and immediately write a Constitution. It takes a good while, uh, and there's the Articles of Confederation, and things are a mess for a while, and it almost falls apart. This meaning of the relationship of revolution to constitution doesn't really stabilize, in my view, until maybe after the Civil War. There are intimations of it. We can find this idea running around earlier, but it becomes the framing idea of the political imagination sometime, I would say, in the mid-19th century. So it's not about history, per se. I'm not writing a history. I'm writing a description of the popular Political imaginary. How do we imagine the relationship between revolution and constitution? And imagining it that way, it informs a certain understanding of ourselves and a certain understanding of our relationship to law. And the primary thing it founds is why are we obligated by our law? You know, what makes it our law? And I think if unless you take these ideas seriously, you simply won't understand much that is unique and peculiar about American political and legal experience.
0: You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius 159. Today, we're continuing our series, The Myth of the Secular. It's presented by David Cayley.
2: shape during the American Revolution is what Paul Kahn calls a political imaginary. The term draws on a concept I mentioned a moment ago, Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor's idea of the social imaginary. Taylor defines it as the imaginative framework, or horizon, within which a given people operates. Their common, tacit understanding of who they are. What's interesting about the American Revolution, a point Taylor makes in his book Modern Social Imaginaries, is that it represented a dramatic change in the social imaginary. The American colonists didn't begin their conflict with Britain with the idea that they were making a revolution or that they constituted a collective subject, we the people. They saw themselves as resisting tyranny and defending their rights as Englishmen. But as events unfolded, a change occurred in what one of the American founders, John Adams, called the affections of the people. The change was underway before war began in 1776, but it completed itself during the Seven-Year War that became known only in retrospect as the Revolution. Truth, Paul Kahn writes, is a product of the event
1: Americans go into the American Revolution not knowing they're going into the American Revolution. (laughs) They have a set of complaints, legal grievances, they're lawyers, and they don't know what's going to (laughs) happen. And then they have a particular kind of political experience. They have a a way of interacting with each other, they make commitments, they engage in sacrifice, it becomes a matter of life and death, and they experience the world differently. They're creating a new community. They're creating new boundaries among themselves, new understanding of what's possible in politics, a new way of being in which their private selves, their economic interests, their familial interests are now subordinated to a whole different idea of what the meaning of history is. What's possible in history? What are we making here? And when I say truth, it's the product of the event. In part, that's that. We don't know what the truth is until the event happens, so to speak. But it's also, we have no way of measuring that apart from the way in which that set of experiences comes to organize their own beliefs and practices. The popular sovereign is not a thing in the world. Political scientists make this mistake, or they think about it differently. They think, well, popular sovereignty is just a matter of of voting. It's just a way of translating, of speaking in shorthand about a political process of decision making in which everybody has an equal vote. Well, that's not the way I think about popular sovereignty. I think of popular sovereignty as a transgenerational collective subject. That's a myth. Now, the myth becomes real when actions are taken, are explained by it. It becomes real when it becomes a part of people's life, when it becomes part of the narrative account they give of themselves. And that's the sense in which the truth isn't measurable outside of the event. The truth is the best interpretation we can give, so to speak, of the events of our political life. And so America has a, a narrative, it tells of itself. It begins in the Revolution. And it you know, moves through the Civil War. And it's tested in the 20th century. And and it uh, reaches a kind of triumphalism uh, at the end of the Cold War. And, and now it's kind of confused. We don't really know where we are or what we're doing. But but these themes are, are very deep. For me, something I, I think important to emphasize as well, that because I'm talking about the nature of the imagination, or what Charles Taylor likes to call the social imaginary, It's very important to think broadly about the sources. So for me, you discover the political imagination not by going to read John Rawls and political theorists and seeing what they're doing in the graduate programs in the study of political science in this country. You learn about the political imaginary when you listen to presidential speeches. How do they frame things? When you go to the movies, our movies are endlessly about politics. Well, what's at stake? (laughs) How do they imagine it? Or read novels or this deeply popular genre of popular history in America. There's just countless books about the about the founding, about the framing, the founding fathers, countless books about uh, the Civil War. I, I saw some remarkable statistic about the number of biographies of Lincoln that have been written, and they would you know stack them end to end. They're like fifteen stories tall. We just can't get enough of this. <laughs> so what is the narrative line? Well, it is the way in which we are imagining ourselves, our expectations about ourselves in all of these products of the imagination. After all, I'm saying the state itself is a product of the imagination, and so are these other works of art and accounts, these narratives. So that's a sense in which the the truth of the matter isn't something separable from the way in which we actually live. The truth of the matter is only the interpretation that we offer when we have to give an account when we look in ourselves and say, well, why am I doing that? What am I doing? How do I understand myself?
2: American self-understanding acquired its characteristic shape, Paul Kahn argued earlier, in the years between 1750 and 1865, the end of the four-year Civil War, when the sacredness of the Union was again sealed in blood. The terms in which it was articulated were religious, and that is why. For him, a political theology is necessary to grasp this self-image. He doesn't say that this is the only way in which politics can be understood, but only that this is the way in which Americans historically have understood
1: politics. Americans have a certain way of framing and imagining themselves and their societies and their norms and their values from the beginning. And the concepts they use have their origins in their religious theological experiences. And that's just, again, a contingent fact about them. So so just think about the concepts that I've been talking about or that inform the book or that I like to use or think about. So we begin with the idea of sovereignty. Well, sovereignty is a religious concept. Think about the most central idea, I think, in American political life, uh, sacrifice. So for me, uh, the ideas of sovereignty and sacrifice are deeply related. In the act of sacrifice, one makes present the sovereign, the popular sovereign. But the language of ultimate sacrifice, which is the language of political rhetoric, and we all know exactly what we're talking about, this is a religious conception. Think about the way in in which I describe the Constitution as the trace of the now withdrawn sovereign. This is a religious conception. This is about a conception that comes out of our understanding of a sacred text. What is the Bible? Well, it's the trace, the remnant of God's presence. Think about our peculiar practices of constitutional interpretation. Why are we so concerned about textualism? Why are we so concerned about the founding fathers? We very much resist an all things considered judgment of the best balance of interests. We don't like to think about it that way. We want to say we're preserving a sacred text. So in in American life, the concepts we draw upon have a religious origin, a theological origin, and they continue to bear what I would call remnants of those origins. Now, in the book, I talk about why this is so. And a and, and very short way of explaining this is I, I think that we only have certain imaginative resources available to us. We have ways of kind of large conceptual building blocks, I'd like to think. These are the, the ways in which we organize our experience. Uh, and the way in which we move forward generally is by analogy. We move. We use these concepts to understand other forms of experience. And of course America starts out as a at least in very substantial part, as a religious project with a religious community. So you know, it's not an accident that Americans start writing covenants early on. Well, that's coming out of a certain kind of religious experience. So I, I think there's a kind of movement of of analogy, you know, when we have to uh, organize a new set of experiences to appeal to what we already do and the way in which we already know things, we we have to write law. Well, what is law? Well, what the early Americans knew was law in some way, you know, begins with Moses getting the law from God and that's not just simply left behind. It continues to inform the practices and beliefs. The concepts always bear remnants of their history. They continue to hold a kind of resonance. Now, all that's a way of explaining the concepts we use to describe or think about and imagine our, our political experience. But I want to emphasize as well, however, that that in my view, the state, for one reason or another, the nation state in the modern period, let's say, uh, from the American and French revolutions uh, on to, the well, uh, in America still, but in, uh, maybe in Europe until the middle of the 20th century, uh, very much absorbs or becomes the site of a kind of sacred experience. It absorbs the, the need for and place of a transcendent experience. So it, in some ways, becomes a competitor with and displaces the church. Uh, so the state becomes the point at which one can be asked to sacrifice, and one can be asked to sacrifice because there is a kind of sacral meaning there, a revelatory a meaning, you know, a showing forth of a transcendent value. So in American life, I always like to say, well, think about the the possibility of surrender. Right, people give you this very strange look. Well, there is no place in the American mind for surrender. It's not just that the United States is, you know, one political option that has to be measured against others. So when the South secedes, you go to war. You know, don't say, well, maybe we can manage as two states. So this idea that actually what's at stake here is something of transcendent value is very much part of our political experience. Whether it will remain so This is exactly the sense in which I say this is not normative work. I don't have a position on whether it should remain so or whether it will remain so. It's obviously subject to huge pressures. I think the idea is dying in some places in the world, and maybe that's a good thing.
2: Whether a condition without sovereignty, a rule of law without exception, is conceivable or desirable is a subject I'll come back to at the end of today's program. But first, I'd like to pursue the claim Paul Kahn just made about sacrifice. He cites the state's right to demand sacrifice, even to the sacrifice of life itself, as evidence that the state possesses what he calls a transcendent value, a value beyond calculation or rational understanding. But this sacred character, he says, never shows up in liberal political theory.
1: What is one imagining when one imagines the possibility of sacrifice? Or for whom will one sacrifice? Or what are the conditions under which one will sacrifice? And one of my objections to liberal political theory is it has no answer to this question. Sacrifice, I don't think, shows up. And it can not show up as long as one understands politics. Remember, Hobbes introduces the very idea of the social contract as, an answer to the problem of the short, nasty, brutish state of nature. The promise of politics is the promise of life. In liberal political theory this remains true, that the promise of politics is the promise of individual well-being. We come together to advance our individual interests in survival in the first instance and the success of our individual life plans in the second. And you might say that the whole point of the state is to divorce it from the domain of the sacred church is about the state of your soul. The state is about the state of your body. Uh, and that's good enough and a good thing, too, <laughs> given the history of religious conflict. Now, I want to say, well, well, it just hasn't worked out that way for lots of different reasons. Instead, what we see is, is a transfer of the site of the sacred from the church to the state. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the state becomes the instrument that not only can demand your sacrifice, but site at which people willingly give themselves. They think that this is a site of transcendent importance. They defend the state. They will defend the state against its enemies. They will defend the state. The continuation of the state in existence is a matter to them of life and death importance. Not everyone, not all the time. But I always say, look, you can think every war the state was in ever in, every every use of force the state ever made was a mistake, and it had bad reasons uh, for going into it, or the state was captured by a minority interest, all mistakes. But if you answer the question, well, can you imagine a situation in which the state can make a claim on your life, and it would be a legitimate claim to which you had to respond? If you answer that question, yes, then it seems to me you understand the state as something that presents a value that is greater than yourself. It's something for which you would give up your finite self for this transcendent value of the ongoing continuation of the political community. Now, what founds that? And a lot of my work thinks about this. And, and for me, the idea of sacrifice is intimately connected to the idea of love. Now, this is, again, you know, this is a theological idea. This is a Christian idea, I, I think. So you sacrifice for the sake of love. In fact, when you're in love, what, one of the things that love teaches you is that there are things in the world, your family, your children, your community, that are more important than your own life. But as you value them more, you imagine the possibility of giving yourself for the object of your love. And of course, again, if you look at fiction and movies, they're all about this. You know, What will you do? Will you give yourself over for the sake of love? Now, to go back to our earlier conversation, what was it that the revolutionaries discovered when they started with a set of legal claims but came to see the world differently? Well, my view is what they discovered was the political community is an erotic community. We are committed to each other and committed to each other in ways that are more valuable than life itself. So sacrifice to me is a measure of intensity of meaning of the political community, which is a site and a location of a kind of eroticism, a kind of erotic community. And wherever we find the capacity for sacrifice, I think we find the capacity or we find the imaginative nature of love And that is, again, another problem with liberal political theory. It has no place for love. But you cannot understand the American Civil War outside these terms. You just can't understand what happened in the American Revolution outside these terms, I believe. And to me, you can't understand the Cold War outside of these terms. It is an imaginable possibility that we will give up everything for the sake of the state. Now, that is a mind-boggling thought, but it is a reality. That's what these weapons, in fact, announce, This political formation is of such value that we're willing to threaten the entire world. Now, how can that be unless one thinks that what's at stake here is an ultimate value?
2: The American Revolution might have failed as revolution failed in Canada in the 1830s. And in that case, as Paul Kahn remarked earlier, it would have been remembered, if it was remembered at all, very differently. It was, in other words, a free act, an exceptional act. And only after it had successfully established a new set of norms, the Constitution, could its meaning be assigned. For Paul Kahn, this relationship between revolution and constitution, between exception and norm is one that he thinks can be observed not just in great affairs of state, but in all free acts.
1: At stake in the idea of the exception is the possibility of the free act. And you can think about the exception as responding to two problems in the history of philosophy or in the way we think about ourselves. So the classic problem of freedom for philosophy has been, how can we be free if we live in a causally determined world, right? That was Kant's problem. How can we be free if everything we think, everything that happens is determined by a cause? How can we explain the free act? The second problem is if everything that we should do is determined by a norm. is we answer the question of what we should do by applying the law, or a law or a moral norm or whatever sort of norm you want. But action is determined by a norm. So Kant at one point says a perfectly rational agent, perfectly rational agents would all do the same thing. They would do by nature what we have to struggle to do because it would be the reasonable thing to do. Well, reason is generating the norms. So if we if we knew everything, if we knew what the norms were, we would simply apply them. Now, I think both of these perspectives have a real problem for freedom, a real problem for understanding freedom. And, and I am interested in Freedom in the following way. A free act is an act that is taken with reference to a norm, but is not determined by a norm, nor is it an arbitrary act. So it's not an act that's caused, and it's not an act that's deduced from a norm. So what do I mean? Well, the easiest example is to think about artistic production. So when a painter paints a painting, his action isn't caused. We can't look at the history of what he's done before, the states of the world at that time, and make a prediction that he's going to go up and do X, Y, and Z. A painting is a free, spontaneous act. We can make a prediction, perhaps, that he's going to paint, but we can't make a prediction what the painting's going to be. We have to wait and see, because it's a free act. Similarly, he's not deducing the painting from a norm. He knows lots of norms. like He knows rules of perspective. He knows the rules of the market, he knows the rules of expectation about what an artist should do. He knows, he knows a lot of norms that are governing his behavior. And if he has to explain himself, he will refer to the norms. He says, well, I did the painting this way because it's our understanding that you know, portraiture should be done one way rather than another or, or whatever. But, so he's acting with respect to the norms, but he's still acting freely. A free act, Paul Kahn
2: says, is always taken in relation to a set of norms. Otherwise, it would be purely arbitrary. The exception proves the rule, as the saying goes, because without the rule, there could be no exception. And all free acts, he thinks, have this character.
1: He offered, as a further example, the conversation we were having. It's not cause. Nobody could have looked at me before I came in here, no matter how much they knew about me. I couldn't, I could not do this about myself, no matter how much self-reflection I had. I could not have predicted what I was going to say. It's not caused. (laughs) It is a response to a set of circumstances. And what I say isn't determined by norms, but it is always spoken with reference to norms. So you and I are having a conversation. You say something, and I freely respond. And the free response is always a surprise. It's possibly surprising. It surprises me. It surprises you, because it's a new act. But to understand that act, we have to understand it by reference to norms that surround us of every sort, uh, the norms of an interview, the norms of, you know, I was told where to place myself in respect to the microphone, the norms of expectations about what a scholarly interview is. And, uh, so yeah, the norms of language, we're, we're, we're referring to these norms constantly. So the exception becomes just a, a kind of large scale instance of this idea of freedom. And I argue in the book, which is maybe a part that many people will disagree with it, that in fact, this is what it's what is at stake when we do law as well, that the judge, it's a mistake to think of judges as simply applying laws as if it was a deduction, as if the norm exists and now the question is, uh, what do we apply it to? And as if the facts are separate from the norms and the judge can simply uh, look at the facts, look at the norm, and say what the outcome is by applying the norm to the facts. I say, actually, judging is a free act, and why is it a free act? First of all, it's unpredictable. Uh, it's not caused. If we thought it was caused, we could have a machine do it. But rather, uh, a judge makes a decision. And the decision has reference to the norm, but isn't determined by the norm. And how do we know that? Well, in the average, you know, in any controversial case, different people on the same bench, different judges, will look at that same norm and think it means different things. They have to decide what it means. <laughs> they will disagree among themselves. There is no simple application of the norm to the facts there's only a decision. Uh, so the, the judge decides, or in an appellate court, there's a vote, right? And the vote is the exercise of of the will, or you might say even a sovereign power. And once we have the decision, we know what the law means. Before that, you can't say the norm determines the outcome because there is no determinant norm until we know what the decision is. So that, again, is a, a model of the free act that's taken with reference to the norm, but is an act, a decision. Paul
2: Kahn's philosophy of law as of artistic production or conversation, makes room for freedom, for decision. There has been, he says, a modernist project of subjecting all politics to law. And this vast confidence in law, it seems fair to say, continues all around us. Kahn is arguing for an approach that recognizes that law never is and never should be without exception. And this has always been the case, he says, going back to the Middle Ages, when courts of equity, so-called, were created to supplement strict justice with fairness and mercy.
1: Think about the king's power to pardon, or even the president's power to pardon, or a jury's power to exercise jury nullification. They don't say, if they say, so-and-so, you were convicted of a crime, And the king says, or the president says, I pardon you, I forgive you. I exercise mercy on you. He's not saying that the law is unjust. If he thought the law was unjust, he would just change the law. He'd make it a just law. He says the law is just, but still I'm acting with reference to that law. It's a just law, but I pardon you. And that's a moment of freedom. It's not caused, it's not determined, but it's something that we think that has to be in the world. (laughs) We don't want justice alone, we want justice tempered by mercy. We want justice and love. And so we can understand politics as modeled on this idea of the imaginative construction of a free act that is not arbitrary, but is not simply the application of a norm. Grant Gilmore, a famous Yale law professor from 20 or 30 years ago wrote a wonderful little book called the death of contract and he ends the book by saying in hell there will be nothing but law <laughs> and we know what he's talking about <laughs> right yes.
2: paul Kahn proposes a philosophy of law that recognizes the complementarity between law and exception. That nothing but law would be hell, as Grant Gilmore said, because freedom is always, in a certain sense, exceptional. Understanding this can shed light, I think, on the anxieties that animate the political right in the United States and drive the contemporary culture wars. Think, for example, of the idea promoted by Sarah Palin that Barack Obama's health care reforms would result in the creation of what she called death panels, able to deny medical care to those deemed undeserving of it. The term was extravagant and quickly became part of the legend of Palin's zaniness. But Paul Kahn thinks he understands where she's coming from.
1: A critique of the health care plan is symbolized often in this idea of death panels. A strange idea that healthcare, there's going to be a bureaucratization of the body, a taking administration of life and death. Now, I think that buried in this idea, to which I'm not very sympathetic, but buried in this idea is a fear that if the state administers life and death, law takes the place of sacrifice. But the possibility of giving yourself to the state requires some free space between the individual body and the state. So the healthcare law looks like just legalization and administration of life itself, and that that undermines or, or cuts against an imagination of the uh, possibility of sacrifice as a free act, not determined by law, but a free act in which one affirms the state in and through one's life. And I think that this idea for largely, I think, these same people in some ways is related to the a peculiar imagine, uh, American fascination with guns. Because Americans' right to own guns is, is not Completely explained, in my view, by a kind of libertarian idea of the defense of the home, the individual, against threat. It's rather goes way back to the idea of a a kind of the calling up of the men-at-arms to defend the state, that it has to be freely given, the idea that you have to be free to defend the state, and that the gun represents this possibility of, of freely committing yourself to the state.
2: Insistence on the right to bear arms and resistance to government involvement in medicine have their roots, Paul Kahn says, in the American political imaginary. And the stubbornness with which they're defended may have to do with how deeply this imaginary is challenged in the contemporary world. At the heart of the American political imagination is the idea of sovereignty, the free act by which the state came into existence the transcendent value that state possesses and the free allegiance to it which American children still pledge at the beginning of every school day. Sovereignty stands above the law as its source and inspiration. But many today see this idea of sovereignty as a deadly anachronism, a vestigial god, and want to strip the state of its sacred aura. It's possible, for example, to understand the peace in Northern Ireland as an instance of post-sovereignty. So long as one was either Irish or English, there could only be war over that territory. One or the other sovereignty must prevail. Only with the imaginative recognition that those sovereignties could overlap, and therefore no longer be sovereignties in the old sense, could peace be established the European Union is another instance, Paul Con says, of a post-sovereign political project.
1: The European Union, in some deep way, is a political entity designed not to be sovereign. It produces law, it produces lots and lots of law, but but you don't see through the law to some transgenerational entity which has a claim on your life in which you participate. right? You see through the law to some, treaty arrangement that states may or may not remain committed to, and the great measure, I said, of of the absence of sovereignty in the European Union is it could dissolve. And it could dissolve without anybody thinking that it was worth going to war over. Uh, So it's not that kind of a thing. It's not the kind of thing where you would call out the troops to defend the political entity's existence, like the Civil War in the United States. So this shows us the strengths and the weaknesses of these ideas that I'm talking about. Because without an idea of, of popular sovereignty as a fundamental commitment of individuals to the existence of the political entity as something of transcendent value, we're not quite sure how deep the commitment is of any group to any other in, in Europe. We don't really know how much you know the Germans are willing to give for the sake of the Italians, or the French are willing to give for the sake of the Greeks, or the Greeks are willing to give. You know, we just don't know. Whereas, in an entity like the United States, I think, in which, despite our regional differences, and we have lots of them, there is membership in a single community. And, you know, when New Orleans has a disaster, it's not a question of, well, how much does New York want to pay for New Orleans? You know, should we transfer resources there or not? It's just a that way.
2: Paul Kahn speaks as an American and claims only that the political culture of the United States cannot be understood without attention to the theological roots of key political concepts, not that this approach applies universally. Canada, for example, presents an interesting contrast, and not just because of the founding role of the Loyalists who opposed the American Revolution and regrouped here as refugees. Lord Durham's Two nations warring in the bosom of a single state pushed Canada from the start towards a more elastic, less monolithic concept of sovereignty than the United States. Nor does Kant argue that the sacralized sovereignty that one sees in the American case is necessarily forever. He finds a post-sovereign condition entirely imaginable, he says, and again points to Europe.
1: So I think the European Union project was, for the most part, a post-sovereign political project. It was to achieve a politics of individual well-being, a politics of law, a politics that promised nothing more in some way than, you know, satisfaction of individual interests, with hopefully a, a rich and acceptable idea of justice. But this is to be a post-sovereign political entity. And and it's completely imaginable to me. More imaginable, it it actually existed, I think. (laughs) And perhaps if it had been managed better, it would continue to exist. Now, you know, its it's weakness is what I've described before. It it doesn't have a great deal of commitment, but we don't necessarily need a great deal of commitment in our politics. So uh, the United Nations is a post-sovereign political entity. And that's OK. We want a political arrangement within the limits of legal mechanisms. So it's imaginable. Now, what's not imaginable to me is that this need for, let's just say a need for ultimate meaning in one's life can simply disappear. Now, people have different views about that, but I, I think religion responds to a, a deep need people have for finding some value in their lives greater than themselves. As you might say imagining something for which they could sacrifice. Sacrifice is not is itself a normative term that it suggests that there are meanings in the world that are of transcendent value. And I think that that element, at least in my ex- experience, is, is something that everybody is searching and, and looking for such a meaning. Whether it will have to be located in politics or not is a completely contingent fact. Our politics could become simply you know, the administration of legal regularity. But in that case, I think the search for meaning will just simply relocate itself to other places, other things, and I have no view about that being better or worse. I think one of the characteristics of our contemporary age is that it it has relocated itself very much, you know, for many people, from the polity to the family. Uh, that the family has a new kind of central meaning in our, in our lives, that I think we should celebrate. Uh, we also see. It, in that connection as well, you know, the, emer- or the reemergence of religion. Many people thought religion was on its, you know, dying legs uh, 50 years ago, and in- instead we see a great exuberance and expansion of religion. Paul Kahn is a thinker who's difficult to classify.
2: He's a professor of law whose work, as he says, straddles philosophy and anthropology, drawing attention to elements of our experience like faith, Sacrifice and the sacred that are usually excluded from political theory. He takes up themes beloved of conservatives, whom he sometimes seems to understand better than they understand themselves, and points up the inadequacies of liberal political thought. But at the same time, he identifies as a liberal. So it seemed natural to ask him, finally, if he has ever misunderstood.
1: Constantly. <laughs> I think if you look at my Wikipedia site, it says I'm the world's, one of the world's leading conservative legal theorists. <laughs> and then it immediately follows by saying, generally known for its progressive politics and leaves people puzzled, how can both of those things be true? And so conservatives do like my writing. And do you think conservatives read through the, my work often as supportive of their positions because it takes seriously some of the things that they— take seriously and that liberals uh, tend to ignore. So yes, uh, I would say I'm misread. But in some way, it's just an expression of the problems we have in our political theory. You're either on the right or the left. And I want to say, well, you know, when I said from the very beginning, my, my work is resolutely not normative. I'm not trying to answer the question what the law should be. I'm trying to find the common themes that unite us in, in our political practices and beliefs. And that's not what's traditionally done. So people are trying to, to answer the question, well, is he on the right or the left? And if people read it to support their own positions. But as a writer, you can only do so much to control what happens to what you write.
0: <laughs> on Ideas, you've listened to the fifth episode of The Myth of the Secular. The series continues next Monday at this time. It was written and presented by David Cayley, with the help of Bernie Lucht, Dave Field, and Liz Naj. You can revisit the program or download a podcast at our website, cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also sign up for our weekly newsletter and find out what's coming up on the show. The executive producer of Ideas is Pam Bertrand. I'm Paul Kennedy. The news is next on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius 159.